Carol Strickland. I have been fascinated with the unknown and paranormal realms since childhood. After a profound experience with my grandmother's spirit 20 years ago, I have been on a quest to observe, study, investigate, and communicate with the afterlife and beyond. It's been an ongoing journey of exploration and discovery, one that has taught me how mortality and the spirit world are forever bonded through the veils of time. Good evening, friends, wherever you are, either here in San Diego, in the U.S., or abroad. If you're listening, you're tuning into another episode of the Afterlife Chronicles right here on the WLTKDB network. You know that website, WLTKDB.com. Of course, I am your host, Nicole Strickland, and tonight's guest I'm super, super, super excited about because the information and the story that you'll hear perfectly embodies what the afterlife chronicles is all about that beautiful connection between uh life death and beyond bridging that gap between uh mortality and the afterlife if you will if you have not followed us uh on the network of course you can get follow obviously our website which i listed or on facebook just with that facebook twitter youtube with that handle wltkdb of course, you can follow the Afterlife Chronicles Facebook at Afterlife Chronicles and beyond. And of course, it's Podbean page at afterlifechronicles.podbean.com. The show before mine, Realm of Darkness, with uh, hosts Rini Rodriguez and Ashley Moreno, just fabulous all around ladies. The chemistry between them is amazing. So uh, they talked about the herd, uh, the death and herd case. Of course, if you missed it, it'll be archived for you. I have some upcoming events. If you're interested, you can just go to my website at authornicolestrickland.com. And of course, uh, the OC Paracon, which is coming up, I know, a few months away in October. On, on I believe it's on the 1st and 2nd at the, I forget the name of the hotel off the top of my head. But if you go to uh, Facebook uh, with the handle OC Paracon, it'll have all the information for you. Great paranormal conference put on by Henry San Miguel of Paranormal Perception. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, show host uh, Pete Orbea of Paranormal Pete Show will be there as well. So it should be a great event. So uh, without further ado, I do want to introduce my guest tonight, Rosemary Thornton. I mean, all around just amazing person. She is an expert in old houses, I read, and has been featured in uh, lots of media about that. But her story tonight, uh, I don't want to mention it. I want her to elaborate on her story because it's very profound, very enlightening, and very inspiring. So without further ado, Rosemary, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you. Well, thank you. Sorry, I'm our, oh, gosh, I need my water. I, I drink like all the time on these shows. It's crazy. <laughs> Linda Myers just popped in. Hello, Linda. Nice to see you. So uh, I like to start out typically with guests on their background and, and uh, so we can get into the, the main, uh, I guess, bread and butter of what we're going to talk about tonight. So give us a little bit about your background and your story, because I know what it is and I know listeners are, are going to find it quite inspiring. Well, briefly, my background is I've been a writer for an awfully long time, and I guess I'm finally a wordsmith. I love big words. Uh, my book is out in the world, which is pretty cool, uh, about my experience. Actually, my 10th book. The rest oh of my, my book. Oh, my gosh. Look at yep. you. That's right. You, you've written nine books, so, so your 10th book. That's amazing. It is. And what's really cool about it, the first nine were about architectural history. So this is kind of a, a turn to a different direction. Yes, and, uh, it is. That's so cool. <laughs> But yeah, I love words. In fact, one of the comments I've already gotten from people reading the book is I use too many big words, but hey, whatever. You know what? <laughs> but yeah, I used to write about. I thought so too, because you learn by reading big words, you know? I Our vocabulary, agree. I think, is shrinking because of Google and you know, what is the I forget the amount of time the average person does a Google search and they'll read the first, I think, three or four lines. They're like, Okay, that's all I need to know. I'm done. Yes. But um 
so my background is as a writer and then uh i had written a book about the sears kit homes which had some that book had some success and by success as a writer i mean it sold a few copies writers are the original starving artist but it was a lot of fun i met a lot of people went a lot of places and then uh kind of through my travels i met a fellow that was uh pretty remarkable he was also a professional and had had some success in life and he was sophisticated and worldly and well-traveled and interesting and fun and i really I really did believe I'd met the love of my life. And we were uniquely suited to each other. We would uh, go to bed early so we could read our uh, you know, our little nooks to each other, our little e-books. <laughs> yes. So he was always reading about military history, and I was reading about architectural history. And sometimes we just switch books, and other times we just read to each other. And uh, something we used to watch Downton Abbey so many times that you know I could recite the lines of Lady Mary, and he could recite the lines of Matthew. So I oh really gosh, thought that's so adorable. It almost reminds I, I, me of an episode of Bob's Burgers. I don't know if it was downtown Abbey, but they, they were doing the characters, the, the husband and wife were doing where they were reading each other lines. So just reminded me it of was. that. And he would, I, I can't even remember the lines now, but every now and then he would grab my hand and he'd look into my eyes and he would recite a line from Downton Abbey. I just when we're at lunch, you know, because he worked in down in a downtown area and we would go to lunch. We went to lunch a lot just so we could spend time together, you know. So uh, one day he, he um, I don't know, I don't know what happened, but he, he uh, ended his life at our home and he used a gun and there was no warning. And people who talk about suicide prevention typically are talking about something they've read and they really don't know that often when people do this, especially adults. Now with kids, I can understand maybe maybe there's signs and i but i don't know again i'm not an expert in that but i know for a 63 year old man they decide to do that and if they're serious they're going to keep their mouth shut and he did so it was to say it was a shock was an understatement the person who called me uh when the person who called me to tell me this had happened because i was out of town i was actually uh, i lived on the east coast and i was in boston a few hundred miles away when the call came that this thing had happened and this was the person who was supposed to be watching my dog for me and when he called and he said i have bad news for you i thought that he'd lost the dog i thought he'd taken the dog out for a walk and lost her which was you know horrible enough but then when he said this i i, I you know of course you remember where you were but um i was with my daughter visiting her in boston and i remember feeling like i was going to pass out i mean i just i couldn't i couldn't put it all together and you know an in, in interest i know we have very limited time but i want to say an interesting aside i had an iphone at this time and i had had it for about oh gosh i guess about two years at this point this happened in april 2016 and so he hung up after telling me this horrible thing and i went to call my other daughter and i looked at this iphone and i realized i didn't know how to use it and i mean i knew how to use it but that left my brain and i remember looking at that phone in my hand and thinking why did i buy something i don't know how to use and I handed it to my daughter that was standing beside me, and I said, make it work. And that's so incredible to even say now, but that's what trauma does to your brain. You look at a phone, and you don't know how to use it. So I really lost my mind. I guess we call it having a psychotic break or having a ner nervous breakdown. And I would get what um, my friend would call the thousand-yard stare, where I would just kind of become fixated in my own head. And, and um, my... Some of my loved ones thought I would be well suited to be put into a psych hospital. And my friend uh, said, no, she'll kill herself. And I think that would have been true. I would have found a way. Uh, and then um, my friend, a couple friends actually stepped in and said, we'll take care of her until she's in her right mind again. And, uh, you know, 29 months went that way. And I talk about that in, my, in the book. One of my friends found out I was uh, starting to live in my car because it was the only place I could get comfortable. And, uh, she said in her best, I'm the mother and that's that voice. She said, you're coming home with me. And I said, nope, nope, nope. Other people have invited me into their home. I scream in the middle of the night from nightmares. I'm not the person you thought I was. And you know, what's really, really interesting is my husband and I had fancy friends. You know, we had big yard parties and, you know, we, we had a nice life. <laughs> After this happened, poof, they all went away. And the people who came into my life, by the way, via social media, you know, people came into my life, uh, people that I barely, barely, barely knew. And they were the people that we would say were kind of on the, um, I guess we'd say the 
the lower rungs of the socioeconomic strata. They were the working class people because those were the people who knew how to deal with somebody in trauma because they knew trauma. And I have learned in my life now, I mean, this happened six years ago as of April. I've learned that the people who can help are the people who've gotten through trauma and come out on the other side. Those were the people who reached in and saved me. And if Absolutely. you haven't been through trauma, you have no clue what to say, what to do or how to help. So it was, uh, those were that's the people. A, that's that a very poignant po point there. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things at his visitation, of course, you know, had a big crowd at the church and all that stuff. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, I'm a reporter. People forget that. But I was a newspaper reporter for three years for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch out in the Midwest. And, and I mean, you know, I did, I, did, I did fluff stories. But still, you learn a lot about how to interview people, how to deal with people, how to read people, how to think. And uh, when we had the visitation, and, of course, it's closed casket, even at the funeral home charged me $14,000 for a restoration and then told me his remains were not suitable for viewing. But anyway, it's a closed casket and people coming down the line in the church to, you know, pay their respects and everything. And you notice how the couples coming forward squeeze each other a little bit tighter as they get closer to the casket. Like, God, I hope this never happens to me. This is so awful. I mean, you can see it in their faces. And, and the number one comment, I must have heard this a half dozen times. If anything like this ever happened to my husband, I just curl up and die. And I'm like, wow, are you you're comforting you. But you're not comforting me. And people do that. People who don't know trauma, again, they look for the things that comfort them. That they, it's, it's honestly kind of it's a dose of self-righteousness to say, I'm going to make sure I put this bubble of protection around me because what happened to you sounds so awful. And I know people love the story. My story's great. And my story's cool. And it, it, it is. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. But when you're the one being marched through the wilderness, when you're the one that's alone in the world and trying to figure out how to just get through another 15 minutes of your life, it ain't easy. It ain't easy. And, and these people who came into my life to save me, I mean, I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I lost the ability to swallow solid food for a time. I was living on nutrition drinks. I mean, people were like, oh, I know what it's like to lose your husband. That's awful. No, no, no. Suicide is very different. Uh, a psychologist, and I can't cite the study, but I read the a psychologist somewhere this made the, I don't know, did the math or whatever and figured out that losing a loved one such as a spouse or a child to suicide is akin to surviving a concentration camp experience in terms of emotional devastation. And I, I, you know, I don't know what a concentration camp experience is like, but what he's saying is one of the worst things a human being can go through. And I've learned that uh, every now and then I meet somebody new and we might get to talking and I'll say, yes, I lost my husband to suicide and they burst into tears. And those people that burst into tears, I know they're the ones who've lost somebody to suicide too. But 29 months, I was trying to keep myself together, and uh, I had a plan for ending my own life because the pain was just getting to be too much. And I knew, you know, because when you go to a therapist or whatever, mental health care worker, and they will always say, do I have to worry about yourself? Is there any risk that you're going to harm yourself? That you better keep, in my case, I knew if I said anything to anybody, they'd find a way to intervene. And I knew I, I, I was thinking of ways to end my life. And I had three prayers I prayed every night. One was, God, either heal me or let me die. Two was, spare me the life review. After his death, I had unbelievable nightmares about that I saw him just as he was getting ready to do this and begged him not to do it. And the other nightmare was I saw him just as he did it. And I wasn't even home when it happened, but, you know, in my mind's eye, I saw what must have occurred. And then my third prayer was, um, I can't handle any more decisions. I was, I always thought of myself as something of a smart cookie. And I lost so many skills. I lost the ability to read. It's one of the things if I were queen of the world, and I really wish I was because I think I could do a good job of it. I would, uh, anybody who's been through trauma at that level, I would not ask them to engage in contracts because when you're that messed up, you just can't comprehend. I had to reteach myself to read it about two years out. And I started by reading juvenile books. I mean, I could read words. You know, I knew what words meant, but I couldn't turn the words into meaning. So uh, rough times. And then uh, 29 months out, I'd been having some odd physical symptoms. And uh, I mean, when you're sitting around praying, God, either heal me or let me die. And really, you're going around praying all the time. I wish I was dead. I wish this was over. I can't handle it anymore. The pain is too great. I can't manage this anymore. God, you've asked too much of me. Stuff, your body's going to say, oh, she wants to go. And uh, 29 months, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, I remember after the diagnosis, I mean, I was shredded. I was, I was, I was just like, oh, come on. And I remember thinking, God, I was pretty clear. I said, let me die not let me suffer more. And it was a very, say it was a difficult time, was an understatement. And uh, I went in for a little simple procedure and they made a boo-boo and they cut something they shouldn't have cut. And uh, 
And yet they, who knows what happened, but they sent me home. After I'd, well, It was a little 30-minute surgery. And after I woke up from this surgery, I said, hey, I'm bleeding a lot. And I mean a lot. And they said, oh, why don't you get home and lie down? You'll be fine, fine, fine. Three times I told them I was bleeding a lot. Fortunately, I had a witness. And he said, yeah, you did say three times. And three times you were told to go home and lie down. I went home. I laid down. It didn't get any better. And I was worried about, I had some really pretty sheets on the bed, you know, little butterflies and little bees on my pretty bed sheets, and I didn't want to mess them up. So I went and stood in my shower because I'm bleeding profusely from lady parts, you know. I'm standing in my shower and just blood, just a mess, you know, a terrible mess. And I remember thinking back in the day, somebody had um, shared a Bible verse with me, 1 Corinthians 10 13, God will show you a way out. And I thought, this is my way out. I found my ticket out of this place. I found my path out. And I remember thinking, all I got to do is sit down on the shower floor. It'll be over. I'm going to bleed out pretty quick. And I had two people that had taken such good care of me, and, and two of them were in the room adjoining the bathroom. And I remember thinking, is that fair to them? Did they come in this bathroom in 10 to 15 minutes to check on me, and I'm splayed on the floor naked, you know, a mess. So I stepped out of the shower, and I, uh, an ambulance was summoned, taken to an ER. And at the ER, it was an ER that was not physically connected to a hospital. It was a standalone ER, and they made some more mistakes. My goodness. They didn't believe I was My really bleeding goodness. to death. And an RN at the hospital, sorry, an RN at the hospital, um, I grabbed her hand. I was very frightened. You know, this this is an intense experience for somebody to go through. And I was very frightened. And I held this RN's hand. I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. But they did make some boo-boos, and they left the room and left me there to keep bleeding, you know. And bleed, I, I just did. can't fathom, like, how, I mean, blood is something you can visually see. Yeah, you know, it's not like it's something weird going on inside your body. How could they <laughs> miss that and not treat well, it what properly? Happened, I know. It's it's funny now when then. But what happened was um, they stuffed me with gauze like a Christmas goose. And it turns out what that did was it stopped the mess. It didn't stop the bleeding. And that was kind of foolish. They shouldn't have done that. And so what happened as a result was uh, I kept bleeding. And they left the room. Doctor and the nurse left the room and left me there with my friend, which was really good. My friend was there, and he said, you know, the blood pressure, and he hooked me up to one of those automatic blood pressure machines. And my blood pressure went kept going down, down, down. He said he looked up at one point. It was 32 over 25. Oh, my goodness. Which is <laughs> pretty much dead. <laughs> and he said he was getting up to get the nurse, and he said, my eyes popped open. You know, they have a term for that now. They call it terminal lucidity, that last burst of energy at the very end of life. He yes. said, my eyes yes. popped open. And he said, you reached up to heaven, talked to somebody only you could see. He said, you reached up your arms as far as you could. which is pretty good for somebody with 32 over 25 blood pressure. And he said, then you flopped back down on the gurney, and, uh, you know, that's when the blood pressure went to error which meant it was probably lower than 32 over 25. And meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I really was. And, you know, I know people say, one of the number one questions I get, you know, is did you sue the hospital? There were two hospitals and two doctors involved in this and a lot of, you know, a handful of nurses. I did not because nobody, people made mistakes. You know, everybody did their best, even if it looks kind of pitiful in retrospect. And then the other thing is, I really believe this had to happen. I think I would have, I think I would have ended my life had it not happened. I was pretty depressed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is this is such an incredible story, and I want to get into it uh, more with you. Very inspirational. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You really inspire a lot of people. But on that note, we do have to take our first break, everyone. So you are, of course, tuning into the Afterlife Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Strickland. Tonight's guest is Rosemary Thornton. We will be right back. A certified spiritual life coach, animal communicator, past life regression, and a psychic medium. This is Charlie Lynn. Charlie Lynn and Chat with Charlie work with you to bring communication and understanding from spirit to those looking to gain insight. Charlie Lynn's spiritual journey has brought her to you, so take advantage and contact Charlie Lynn today. Book a reading, indulge in some Reiki work, or take the next step in your life with some spiritual life coaching. 
No matter, Charlie Lynn is here to help you. Search Chat with Charlie on Facebook. That's Chat with Charlie on Facebook. minutes past the hour you're tuning back into the afterlife chronicles here right on the wltkdb network i'm your host nicole strickland tonight's guest is rosemary thornton author of remembering the light how dying saved my life amazing title if you've missed the first 20 minutes of the episode the entire episode will be archived for you of course so before the break uh we were talking uh, rosemary was sharing about the tragic loss um, of her husband and then uh, we were getting into uh the your physical issues and 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 low blood pressure and the bleeding issue and uh right before the break it's it's like i'm trying to like not tear up because i know how sensitive this is and i i just have to say i have to commend you for every single interview you do and every single time you share this story because you are an inspiration to so many people and i could just in the few minutes that i've been talking to you you have so much resilience and so much strength so mm. thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, you're low. So you were bleeding out low blood pressure. What did you say? 30 over 20, some 32 over 20 something. That's insane. You had at this point, almost a spiritual intervention. So can you share that with us? Yes. And what that was like? Because it's, it's very profound. Thank you. Yes, it was 32 over 25 was the last reading. Which oh my is like, gosh. It's pretty low. You know, when I, I, back in the day, I gave a couple of these talks in front of live crowds, which I loved, you know, in front of people, humans. Yeah. And when I would say the 32 over 25, I could always pick the medical people in the audience because they go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, my gosh. And the my other mom's a I, nurse. Yeah, my mom's a nurse and she's listening to this and I'm sure her eyes are like, whoa, anyways. And the other part is when I say I told the nurse three times that I was bleeding out and they said, just go home. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be fine. You know, a statistic I shared, and it's an old statistic, I wish I could find it again, but uh, a disproportionate number of women die. I think it's more women than men die from cardiac events because when women present at an emergency room and they say, I got chest pain, they'll say, well, it's, or, you know, I got jaw pain or shoulder pain or whatever. They'll say, the medical professionals will say, well, it's a heart, it's a panic attack. And so they yes. go home and die of a heart attack. So the medical society, for all our enlightenment, we still t- tend to be dismissive of women's complaints. So when I said, hey, you know what? I've been around for 59 years, and I'm pretty sure what's happening is a really <laughs> bad thing. And they say, it's just go pretty home. Pretty obvious. And <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, back, uh, I was, I, you know, while I'm sure to the world this didn't look like a good situation, I... uh the last thing I remember, uh, they had given me a shot of Dilaudid right before they, they left the room. And I mean, oh if you want to grease the skids to the afterlife, there's probably not a better way. That drops blood pressure. Like, why would they do that? That's right. And when you're already down a few pints, they put that stuff in. Oh my it's gosh. probably like, kaboom. I mean, my little heart was like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And then I get that to water and my heart's like, I surrender. You know? Oh my anyway. God. And I've had that. I've had that medication before. It's woo. My gosh. It's a, it's a morphine derivative. It is. Yes. So it's my insane. very close to my last words on this earth were, that's some good stuff. And then you know, I was gone. But meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I really was. I uh, The last thing I remember was that and passing out. I mean, I, I don't remember passing out. I just remember thinking, oh. And then the next awareness I had was waking up and waking up being catapulted out of my body. And I mean catapulted. I had never heard anybody else describe it that way. And, you know, that's the other interesting thing. I had been a big fan of NDEs my whole life. Ever since Raymond Moody's Life After Life, I think it was 76, came out as a trade paperback. Amazing book. Amazing I read book. that thing until I memorized it. And then there was George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow, Daniel Brinkley. Oh, God, I can't remember his title. And then Betty Eadie. I read all those books the second they came out and read them again and again and again and again. But I, I don't remember ever hearing anybody talk about being catapulted, but I was. And it was so dramatic and it was so fun and so cool. And I mean, I was just thrown out of this body very dramatically. And I was floating away in this blackness. And the blackness 
you know, people say, did you see your body? I did not. But this blackness was both comfortable and actively comforting me. It was somebody, I heard somebody describe it as velvet, which I think is a very apt description. But it wasn't hot. It wasn't cold. It wasn't damp. It wasn't dry. It was perfect in every way. And I mean, this was just so cool. And I knew instantly what's so amazing is the first words out of my mouth. And yes, this was not telepathic. I felt like I was speaking. You know, I, I had uh, I had lived alone for a time and I had a dog and I talked to the dog way too much. You know, so I, everything, I, every thought has to be spoken out loud. You know, ruminating is my superpower. You know, I think of everything, <laughs> everything. And, and, and then I, I talk all the time to myself, but it's often out loud. So the first words out of my mouth were my heart has stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then I thought, I'm dying. And then being the ever writer, I thought, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. And it cracked me up because I thought, here I am going to my reward and I'm correcting my grammar, you know. And it, <laughs> I <laughs> and I laughed out loud because I thought, you're funny, <laughs> you know. And I heard myself laugh. And then when I heard myself giggle, it was all it was all so much to take in because on one hand I thought I still have my quirky moribund goofball sense of humor I still have my giggle and it's a very unique giggle and I thought I don't have lungs I don't have I don't think I do I have don't have breath sounds I probably don't have vocal cords and yet I'm producing sound the same way I had produced sound ten minutes ago I thought this is so interesting because now the body's back on that gurney not looking too good I'm sure and I'm I'm still me. And the fact that I still had my sense of humor and you know, one of the very early thoughts I had, very, 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 very early thoughts, I had been diagnosed with stage two cervical cancer and I was supposed to start uh, something called a chemo class where they sit you down and tell you, you know, how many things are going to happen when you start chemo. And I was supposed to start chemotherapy once a week and uh, daily radiation. And one of my first thoughts were, don't have to worry about that anymore, do I? And I also had thought about my, <laughs> I was very relieved. And I also thought about my own husband's suicide. And I thought, you know, I didn't do this to me. In fact, I sought medical care to deal with the problem. So thank God I'm out. And I didn't do this to me. You know, I'm going to spare my kids what he did. And I was very relieved by that. And it's interesting to me that these memories were all still so clear with me. And as the experience went on, very early in the experience, I'm not sure when, but I, I was aware. I'm still floating, floating away and having the time of my life. I mean, I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, okay, we're in blackness. This is great. Don't know where. And I'm a nervous driver. You know, I'm the person that sits in the passenger seat and says, I think the left lane's better. I think if you go faster, you can make light. I think you need to turn left here. Speed up, slow down, you know? And I'm floating and I don't know where I'm going and I don't care because it's great. And a lot of people talk about the love they experience. I experienced yes. such peace. Peace, yes. peace, peace. And I realized when I thought about the fact that I'm still funny and I'm still me and I still have a bizarre sense of humor, I thought, what did I leave behind on that gurney? And I thought the anxiety, the ruminations, the fear, the woes, the worries, everything negative about me was back on that gurney or it hadn't come with me. And I thought, I do remember very clearly thinking, I've always wondered what I would look like without those negative attributes. And I thought, I like it. I like this person that I am. And uh, it's very early on. Again, it's, you know, time is a very linear construct. You it know, is. Einstein said time is an illusion, however persistent. And it felt like it was all happening. It was all this was happening. And one of the things that occurred is I was joined by a massive, massive spiritual being. And he, she was to my left and much taller and uh, slightly above me. And I turned to my left to look up and see who this was, but still in blackness. I couldn't see, but I thought that was pretty interesting that I was looking to my left and over my left shoulder with a head, you know, and I, this was just all so cool because you, you think, what is death? Well, apparently everything we are goes with us and everything we aren't stays behind, which I thought about that every day. That's a, a good lot. way to put it. Yeah. And, and that, that stuff was explained later to me. It was muck. You know, the anxiety, the fears, the worries, the woes, all that. That's the muck of the earth that we get saddled with or the, the traumas that don't quite get healed. But this big being was to my left and I turned and looked at whomever and I said, almost, it almost sounds flippant, but it was not. I said, and who are you? And the answer was immediate before I could even finish the sentence. The answer was, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. 
Oh, like, oh my gosh. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Yes. Made the image and likeness of God. Yes. And I had, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of the Bible. I love the Bible. Read, had read it a lot, had studied that Bible verse. That's probably one of my favorite Bible verses. What does it mean that we're made in the image and likeness? And, 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 but I got it. I got it. I had never thought of it in that terms that there's an original and I'm but the, I'm the image and likeness. And I've thought about that's something else I think about every day is there's an original. So this went on and on and angels talked to me and things were explained to me. I, my mother told me a story when I was an infant. I was given up for dead. And because one of the things I happened to me in this experience floating in this blackness and having a great time was I thought I've been here before. Like in this life experience, I've been here before. And so I asked the angels, I said, I've been here before, the memory, very clear, what's going on? And the angel said, well, you know that story your mom told you about being given up for dead as an infant and then you came back to life? You weren't almost dead, it turned out. You kind of got sent over and sent back. And I was like, well, that explains a lot. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Would have been good to know back there that I couldn't stop reading about NDEs. And I'm the one in the family that, you know, when people passed on, I'd say, oh, Aunt Myrtle has passed on. And they'd say, what are you talking about? How do you know? And I'd say, well, she just walked by. Didn't you see her? <laughs> you know, I've always had that. And and my, I don't know. People don't get it. And when you're a kid, oh, my gosh. When you're a kid, you just learn to keep your mouth shut. Oh, I, I, people. I know. I, exactly. I've been there. It's so, so much this, more acceptable now, though, which is good. It's helping yes, people. Yes, it is. So this went on and on and on. I mean, I know we, I know we have limited time, but I, I learned a lot. I was told a lot. At one point, I ended up in a white room. And the thing is, I don't remember the transition from going from floating in this blackness to being in the white room. It's like somebody took my batteries out, and I just went, Ooh. and but I'm in this white room, and I'm standing on my feet. Except I didn't think about that. I wish I'd looked at my feet. Ooh. I didn't look at my feet. I mean, what did they look like? You know, were they sparkly? I don't know. But um, in this white room, there's a very light, well, not light, there's a mist falling. And it was a very busy mist. It was swirling and dancing and moving. But on the other side, I guess 15 to 20 feet in front of me of this white room, this beautiful white, iridescent, luminescent, bright, bright, bright white, I saw a door. And having read all those NDEs, I knew what that door was. And I was like, okay, I know we're at the mm -hmm. part where, you know, maybe I can go back and there's the door out of my way. <laughs> I see oh. the door. We're doing the door. Nobody needs to ask me again. I'm out of here. And really, truly, one of my thoughts was, no lie, no kidding. One of my early thoughts was I felt like I'd been granted early release for good behavior. I really did. You know, I was off planet hell, going to heaven. Great. Thank God. Literally. Thank you, God. I'm, I'm out. And I had always kept a daily gratitude list. You know, every day I write down five things for which I'm grateful. And right. I, through this whole experience, I kept going, thank you. Thank you. I'm free. I'm clear. I'm out. It's done. It's over. I served my time and I got out and I was just going home. And, you know, this this whole thing of dying. It really was akin to waking up from a very intense dream and realizing those 59 years had been just just over in a second. And it, it truly was, it truly was like having a loving parent shake you awake after a bad nightmare and say, I came in here and you were screaming and you were crying and you were so frightened, but it's over. It's all over. That's a, that's a really fantastic analogy there. That's what it was like. And all this torment caused by losing all my friends and my place in life. I mean, to go from being an author and having some, itty bitty bit of fame and acknowledgement from the world and marrying this guy that everybody thought was a catch to living in you know living off um liquid nutrition drinks and you know the rest is is a pretty big pretty big juxtaposition so um i see that door and i i really did say pretty much out of my way i know what the door is and uh, as I'm walking toward it, and I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet or legs, but I know I can move with intention. So I made an intention to get to that door as fast as possible. And I, I even thought to myself, I don't know if I'm walking, but I know I can perambulate. <laughs> so oh, nice. I was perambulating There's toward the door. There's those big words again. I, love I know it. it. Oh I like big words. And as I did so, I was pretty interested by this mist that was falling all around me. And I tried to focus on an individual droplet. And I know that sounds nuts, but I felt like it was something I ought to be able to do. And I was with an angel or spiritual being 
and I asked her, seemed like a her, I asked them, I said, why can't, why can't I focus on an individual droplet? And the answer was, it's because your eyes have not acclimated to this new environment yet. You know, this is pretty new still for you. And they said, but it's light. That's what you're being showered with and surrounded with. And, and I thought, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. They're particles of light. And I got to the door and I realized the door was closed. I mean, the door, obviously the door is closed, but I thought, I thought about that hymn, Going Home. Um, going home, going home, I'm just going home. Do you know that song? Yes, I've heard she, it. She talks about just going through an open door. And I thought that door should be open. <laughs> and it wasn't. And I put my right hand up in preparation to push through the door because I couldn't, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to get this going. I couldn't wait to have this, to see what's next. And as I did so, I did pause and I asked, is this the divine will for my life? And this is something else I remember so very distinctly was no. The answer was no, it's not. In fact, I couldn't even get the whole sentence out. I just said, is this divine? And the answer was no, it's not. But whatever you decide to do, you go with all of God's love and mercy and grace and blessings and care. There isn't a wrong decision. And that was really the answer to that second or third prayer is I can't handle any more big decisions. Well, deciding whether to go on to earth or stay in heaven is a pretty big decision. Uh, and I believe that's true, that when we are trying to do the will of God, we're not going to make a wrong decision. And if we do, we'll be gently guided back to the right path. So I asked that question and I was ready to go. I was so ready to go. And then um, I had a vision of that nurse that promised me that I wasn't going to die. And she was sitting in a hospital supply room surrounded by linens and other things and holding her head in her hand, sitting on a little stool and leaning forward and sobbing. And she said, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. And I thought, yeah, well, she's a nurse. She signed up for this. She'll get over it because I need to go. I'm done. And then I had, and vision is not strong enough a word. It was as though I was immersed into that hospital room for a moment. I mean, it was a 3D experience. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes. It was like I was, way to put it. it was like I was a secret observer to her life for a moment. And then mm -hmm. I felt her pain. And I know this sounds odd, but it was like her pain hit me right here in the, the chest, right in the center core of my being. And I recognized it as the same pain I had experienced, uh, that deep grief from my husband's yes. suicide. So I... I put my hand back down by my side. Pretty interested by the fact I was using my right hand to push through that door to go on. Right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. And I realized if I could spare one person that much pain, I had to go back. And boy, I tell you what, the second I made that decision, I put my right hand back at my side. And my last words in heaven were, it's going to ruin that nurse's day if I die. And in a millisecond, I was back on that gurney with lots of stuff happening now. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Oh my lots, of, lots of exciting things happening. Even they, uh, somebody told me, I didn't know this, but somebody told me they even called the receptionist back in that room to work on me. So and the, the first thing I remember is I'm like, what the hell, man? <laughs> where, where, weren't we going to talk about this? Wasn't there going to be some discussion? I was at the door. I thought, we, you know, Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, you know, we had a first. We didn't have a second. And I know we hadn't moved to the discussion phase. And I did see an angel in the upper left-hand corner of the room, and I directed my thoughts to her. And I did literally say, we, we were not in the discussion phase yet. I thought we were having a back and forth, you know. And the angel, the angel kind of just looked at me and said, hi, glad you're back. Uh, I, was, I was actually a little distressed because I was so close. And yet I did ask, you know, what's the divine will for my life? This is so, oh my God. I mean, this is such a detailed, descriptive account of, and I, I almost think that the term NDE, near-death experience, should be almost redefined because I'm one of these that thinks, you know, does death really occur? Yes, death of the physical body, but do we really, really die? I mean, that's a whole different discussion, but I well, love- that's if I could interject, I, yes. as a writer, I don't like near-death experience. I use the term temporary death experience. In fact, that's, that's my website. That's a good one. Yes. Temporarydeath.com is my website because I, near death is when you're on a plane. It's going, you know, it's going badly and they pull okay. it up at the last minute. Thank you. I died. And the next morning, you know, now, now they put me in the hospital for several days. But the next of, morning, of the course. doctor came 
and checked on me and he said, uh, Mrs. Thornton, your heart stopped last night, which was very affirming. You know, it was very affirming. So I, there was medical proof that, you know, there was a pretty big oops. Uh, so I didn't come close to death. I died and I came back. And um, I, I don't know, it, it changed me in every way a person could be changed. And it was nice to be in the hospital and have people believe that I was actually, you know, of course. in bad shape. Of course. I, you know, you hear that after people go through these situations that their life has changed. So how did this experience change your life? So many ways. And I, I guess I something I should have mentioned, one of the things I was told in the white room was that if I agreed to go back, I'd be made whole. And mm. I thought, okay, good to know. Out of my way. <laughs> you know, I don't care. <laughs> I, I love your, I love the comedicness of, that's even a word, but the comedy in this, the lightheartedness is great. <laughs> well, those angels are pretty funny, let me tell you. Right. And I got, I got some with good sense of humor, which was really important. Yeah. Apparently those are my people. That's Yay. my tribe. Totally. <laughs> so uh, that was something I was made clear. And, you know, I don't really know. It was just, I was just told. If you agree to go back, you'll be restored to wholeness. So when I got back, um, I, I know we're kind of short on time, but the big thing that happened. We can always do a part two sometime, so if you want. One of the big things that happened is when I was resuscitated, um, I knew I was different. I knew everything had changed. And I, I've heard people say after they die that they feel like they're 50% in that world and 50% in this one after they die and are resuscitated. And uh, I, not, that was not my experience. I was 95% in that world and 5% in this one. I think part of the reason was I bled to death. And coming back from that takes some energy and some time and some effort. I think I was still pretty fragile in those early hours. And I remember that first night in the hospital that I felt in my torso area that something was very wrong. Things were not right. Things were not working the way they should. And I asked the angels, and I had their audience, which was great. I felt very close to these angels. I, I mean, it's like the people were... 2, 2D cardboard cutouts and the angels were the reality but I asked the angels I said am I going to die again seems like I got a lot of effort to finally get me back and they say oh well you know we'll give her a second chance and the angels said no they said uh, what they said was they said we're doing some repairs and that you're still being restored and, and wow. you'll feel, you might feel a little funny but you're not going to die and everything will be fine and it took some time and some effort, but emotionally I knew I was a different person. I had had so much guilt over my husband's death. There had been an argument before this happened. He had called me and there had been very ugly words. Oh and I mean, gosh. I, you know, I had jumped right into it with him, you know, as we tend to do sometimes. And then he hung up and he did this thing. And I've since learned that that's not uncommon. It's kind of like they need the emotional angst to do the act, you know. And but after this, it was gone. I had been constantly in these ruminations of how could he do this? I thought he loved me. What happened? How could he do this? I thought he loved me. What happened? And something the angels said, they told me so much. But one of the things they said was, um, I asked, where is he now? And they said, he's with us. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, well, what is he doing? What's happening? I need to know. You know, this was my husband. And they said, none of your business. And I said, no, wait a second. <laughs> None of my business. And they said, you were not, um, you were his helper. You weren't his spiritual guardian. And I had had a lot of guilt because he was an agnostic and I'm a believer. And I felt like it was my job to teach him about the reality of the creator and the creation and God and love and light and all that stuff. And I had failed. And where do you go when you feel like you have failed God? You know, to whom do you turn? And, and the angel said, no. You know, we are to work out our own salvation. Stop trying to work out his. And that was so liberating. I mean, I would lie in that hospital bed. I was on bed rest. Yeah, they were a little worried about me bleeding out again. So I was on total bed rest, and I had a lot of time to think. But I would just cry when the angel said, the guilt is gone. You know, and I literally felt like I could see these shackles just dissolving. The shackle, it, you know, there's um, somebody said you're never going to find healing on the, <clears throat> on the merry-go-round. And that's what I'd been doing, just go around in these circles, these ruminations. Before, and this yeah, got I was me just off say of that. The ruminations, yeah, ruminations. And I me, do that, I do it. And it got me off of that, and I was able to forgive myself. And still lying in that hospital bed a couple of days later, I was able to forgive him. And I mean, everything about me changed, everything. And somebody said it's like you came back, not Rosemary V2, but Rosemary V27. I got a serious upgrade. And it took some time, and I had to have another uh, surgical biopsy. 
Uh, but ultimately, um, it was discovered. In fact, I had to find another oncologist because it turns out when you go back to the first oncologist and say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be needing that chemo or that radiation. Healed in heaven. It's all good. That they make a little note on your chart chart that says mentally ill. <laughs> uh, yes, there is a stigma and it's it's sad. I, I mean, I wish medicine and then the metaphysics would blend a little bit more. But yep, I, 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 I absolutely know. I really believe the next fantastic advance in medicine is going to be appreciating, understanding, and studying the mind-body connection Absolutely. and spiritual element and spiritual mm -hmm. healing. Because what happened, I had to find another oncologist, and I had to travel an hour from my home to find somebody who could get past the part of, wait, you died from a cervical biopsy? you know. And, and also, I had a very well-known oncologist that had been helping me. And people would say, well, look, if he told you that, you need to go with what he said. So I had to drive an hour from my home to find somebody else. And this somebody else was pretty darn nervous about the whole thing. But she emerged from the second surgery. I mean, you know, it was my second, her first with me. She emerged from that surgery, according to my friend, was in the waiting room for me again. And she threw her arms around his neck and said, she's right. There is not a single cell of cancer on her body or, you know, in this region. And she said, um... She said, in fact, her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect, I wouldn't believe she even had cancer if I hadn't seen it for myself. And there you have it. There you have it. That right there, that's the eye opener. You know, I mean, your story and that objectiveness right there backs, you know, connects those two. Absolutely phenomenal. You know what? I'm going to forego the second break because we need every minute of the show. <laughs> it's fine. I don't do it that often, but it's fine. Um this is such an amazing, enlightening story. I do want to touch on real quick, though, the ASP, if you don't mind, the aspect of suicide and the stigmas associated with it. What I mean, what are your thoughts about about some of the stigmas associated with suicide? And what would you what would you say to someone who is so engrossed in those in those stigmas? Uh well, I, well, I have a lot to say. Um, you know, my book took me three and a half years to write, and I wasn't going to write it except somebody. One of the things that happened day two, so my husband does this thing. I'm a very spiritually minded person, and I lost it. I mean, I lost it. And uh, my daughter, one of my daughters took me to an urgent care place, you know, urgent now care, whatever. And right. the doctor... Um, about my age, you know, I get ushered back into the room and I'm up on the exam table, sitting on the exam table. And this very breezy, happy doctor comes in. He says, so ladies, what's the problem? And he looks at me and, you know, I'm just kind of, and my daughter says her husband killed himself and she can't eat or drink. And, you know, she has to be able to at least drink something. And the doctor literally reeled back. I mean, literally went back. And, oh, he said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He said the same thing happened to my aunt Bertha. Her husband killed himself 45 years ago, and she was never right in the head again. That is not how medical personnel should be responding. No. And to my daughter's great credit, and she was, gosh, in her 20s at the time, late 20s, she turned to him and she said, Doctor, that is not helpful. Are you going to help my mother or not? Right. And to his credit, he very quickly regained his composure and, you know, opened the folder and said, okay, I'm going to give your mom a 60 count of, of, of benzodiazepines. And, and they were helpful. They did help. But that's, you talk about the stigma. Oh, the number one thing, if I was, again, queen of the world, I've got big plans for when that happens. But <laughs> I would create an advocacy group for women who have lost a husband to suicide because one of the suicide prevention groups, uh, not prevention, I went to a suicide uh, support group where for people who've lost somebody to suicide. And I went to one of these groups and there was a woman there about my age and she was talking about her son who had killed himself. And she did not like her daughter-in-law at all. And she said to the group, she said, uh, my husband, uh, my son would still be alive if he hadn't married that bitch. And I was like, I'm out. I'm done. And I left. That, that's exactly. See, that's what I'm talking. That's why I asked this question. And it's uh, Kevin Hines. Uh, we all, a lot of people know who he is. He's, he's the individual that um, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said this, and this is very important. He said, I was on that bridge. Not one person 
paid attention to me. Not one person looked at me. Not one person asked me if I was okay. If someone had come up to me and asked me, hey, is everything okay? I would not have jumped. So there's the empathy and the compassion again with all of this. And I will say I've lost someone to suicide as well. One of my coworkers jumped off the Coronado Bridge here in San Diego. So it's devastating. It's devastating. And I just wish there was more advocacy for it. The advocacy is a mess. And and, uh, one of my goals, and it's a big goal, seriously, is to create a group for women. And, 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 yeah, I guess my heart goes out to the women, the wives, because we're the ones – I heard Suicide Lichen on a popular show to a suicide bomber that straps on the vest full of explosives. And in this analogy on this TV show, what he said was those closest to the detonation are shredded. They're destroyed. But even into the outer rings of, you know, as you say, friends, family, co-workers, they suffer a lot of damage. But the one to whom they were closest is the one who gets destroyed right with them. And I'm in a social media group called Sisterhood of Suicide Widows, and they, those women have saved my life. But studies show that people like me who lose a husband or a child, somebody very, very close, are 12 to 48 times more likely to end their own life. So if we want to talk about suicide prevention, how about we look at the known risk group, which is people like me who've lost somebody to suicide. Because when the smartest Mm -hmm. man you've ever met does this, you're like, hmm, might not be a bad idea. And when you see how he did it, I mean, in terms of keeping his mouth shut, you're like, okay, that's what you need to do. And I mean, that's not what you need to do. You need to talk to somebody. But I, I can tell you, I could give you a list of names of people that I would say, I'm feeling suicidal. Can you help me? And they'd say, well, you need to get mental health care. I, I didn't really, I mean, I was getting mental health care, but sometimes you just need to hear a voice. I heard a story, and this sounds trite, but uh, somebody was at the famous Golden Gate Bridge getting ready to jump off. And I think they were walking up there or whatever. And another pedestrian going the other way said, those are really pretty boots you have on. I love them. Where'd you get them? And they were like, just that one connection with a human saying something kind about them was enough for them to say, I'm not sure I want to do this. Exactly. That's the whole Kevin Hines point that I was making. Exactly. Right. So what we need to do is identify a known risk group, such as people who have lost somebody like this. And instead of them treat, I got treated like a leper. It's one of the reasons that I turned suicidal. You do get treated like a leper. You get shunned. And even now, even now, six years out, sometimes I'm with somebody and I maybe share my story and, and the unenlightened I I can read people sometimes really well. And I think that's part being a former an interviewer type and part of it's just my experience. But I look in their eyes and, and you can see you can see in their eyes that they're thinking, what did you do to him? You know, and it's um, it's it's haunting. It's it haunting. haunting. I still get blamed. I am not to blame. It, one of the things that finally gave me a tremendous measure of peace was there is nothing I could have done to stop my husband from doing this. And there is nothing I did to cause him to do this. I was not I was not in that equation. In fact, the day before he did this, we were standing in our kitchen in our beautiful home, and he said, I'll be dead soon. And I, I literally shoved him against the refrigerator. You know, I, I grabbed him by his lapels and shoved him and put my body against his and said, take it back, take it back, take it all back. You must know I can't live without you. You must know I'm the love of, that you're the love of my life. You must know that, that I, I, I have to go first. I can't live without you. And, and because you can't, you can't put those words into the universe without them having power. But I didn't know the plan. You know, he and I spent four months discussing the purchase of a side-by-side refrigerator for our kitchen. How did he do this without consulting me? You know, I don't know. But the stigma is massive. Absolutely it massive. Is. I was it's an horrible. author. And I was married to this fancy, professional, important, politically connected guy. And I got, I just got cast to the side. When I would close my eyes and pray, I would just see myself floating in the middle of the icy Atlantic at midnight on a starless, moonless night, trying to find a piece of driftwood to cling to. And and there's nobody coming to save you, you know? But I did have, there were people, there were people that showed up, but those were not the people that were at the center of my life. They were the people who just stepped in and said, one of my dearest friends, a woman who took me into her home for four months, she was... She was driving down the road, and she was she was actually um, had a business. She was on the road a lot. She was driving down the road, and the radio came on and said, you know, he killed himself and blah, blah, blah. And my friend said she had to pull off the road and sob. 
And she said she heard herself saying out loud, we're going to lose Rosemary too. Because everybody knew this man was the answer to a lifetime of prayers. This was the man I felt like I felt like I'd been born to marry, you know. And so, yeah, the stigma is massive. And I wonder, I mean, I have a fairly visible presence. I have a website on the old Kit Holmes that's had three million views. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got I got marginalized like that. And I was blamed. I was roundly blamed. In fact, after I came back from my near-death experience, I left that area and I moved a thousand miles away to the Midwest because I couldn't, I had to have a fresh start. And the other thing is I sold everything I own and sold my pretty fancy car and sold my house. And I started a new life in a new place. And I could not have done that before. But yeah, it's, it actually, you know, it's really interesting. I realized the happiest I'd ever been in my entire life was when I was floating away in that blackness. And I realized I didn't own a single thing. I just wanted to not. And that's a, that's a huge, huge running theme with these near death encounters, or like you say, temporary. What did you say? Uh, temporary. Uh, temporary death. death. Te yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, yes, this the whole. I mean, that's a whole nother show uh, we could do potentially about suicide, but. I, oh, I, I can wish, talk about suicide. Oh, I know. I it's. I wish from such a young age, kids in school. And even just even adults, that empathy, I don't think it's something you can teach, but you can try to help facilitate it and instill it in people. And I think if people understood compassion and, and empathy and even sympathy to different things more, I think we'd see less of this and less of that stigma, just in my opinion. Uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous, tremendous story. Like I said at the beginning, you're an inspiration for so many people by uh, getting here, getting up and telling your story because you don't know it's a ripple effect. You don't know how many people it's going to help. It's like the pay it forward thing in a way. So well, I, I can't thank that. you enough. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, websites, social medias, uh, any upcoming events, things like that. Mike is yours. <laughs> well, my website is temporarydeath.com, and that's important to me because, in fact, you know, one of the things real brief about suicide, uh, when a husband does this, the wife is the prime suspect in a murder investigation. Right. So I got yeah. questioned by the police. They came to the house. They questioned my kids. A woman contacted me through my website, temporarydeath.com, and she said, yeah, I, I actually was detained like held by the cops until they determined it was a suicide. And that's very common. So if you want to ruin mm -hmm. somebody's life, yeah. Can you imagine being a murder suspect? And again, if I could have an advocacy group, one of the things I would say is like we used to do with rape victims, or I'm sorry, victims of sexual assault, we'd, we'd give them an advocate because the cops, yes. and, and again, this was 50 years ago, but they would say, well, why were you wearing a miniskirt? Why were you going to a bar at two in the morning? You know, why were you wearing those high heels? Did you really think that was a good idea? That's what we did. And we're doing that now with suicide victims. So what was the nature of your last argument with him? What is it exactly that happened? Where were you when this happened? Did you have life insurance on him? We should not be doing that to a woman who just found out that her husband did this thing. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So, yes. We've got to re rethink some of these things that are just add layer upon layer of the trauma. Absolutely. And I, you know, I know no words can really provide the absolute comfort, but from my heart, my sincere condolences to well, you, you. Um, for this. Uh, one last question. Well, we, we're a minute out. So, you know what? I would love to have you back on because I think there's so many different avenues we can go down um if you're willing so we can maybe schedule that. that um again uh your website temporarydeath.com right and your book yes. again is where can people remembering book? the light it's it's at the world's biggest bookstore remembering the light how dying saved my life i and love the cover that's amazing isn't that cool yeah, yeah. And the only reason I don't like writing. Writing isn't fun. The only reason I wrote the book is I, I'm an intensely private person, but it, boy, putting my book out there, I was like, are you nuts telling this story? But yes, my only reason for doing it is because I do want to be a blessing. You know, yes. I want to help others because I, I barely made it. And you well, are, you. you are, you, you made it, you made it for sure. Well, and you. it's a ripple effect. You're helping so many people. So there you, there you go, guys. Rosemary Thornton. Uh, what a, a great, inspiring discussion. Can't wait to talk to her more. So next week I have Greg Koss on. And then after that, on the 12th, I have Mary Bethune and Linda Myers on. So lots of great guests coming up. 
So it is Thursday tonight. I actually early this morning thought it was Friday, but it is Thursday. But I always say have a good weekend because the weekend is approaching. And as always here at the Afterlife Chronicles, we are exploring the connection between life, death and beyond and bridging that gap between mortality and the afterlife one experience at a time. Have a good night, folks. See you next week.